It's good to see all of you. Glad to be here with you again this morning. Um, I'll tell you, my wife and I, we, uh, when we first got married, um, we've been married for almost 10 years now, I should say. When we first got together, when we first started dating, um, she was living in Arkansas, right? Um, and I was there for a very short time, and then I passed on. I went on to Italy. So I, was, I came back to Arkansas to raise some support, and I was going over to Italy on a mission trip. And so we started dating. We all had about five weeks together, and then I was going to be overseas. And so for 11 months, we were apart. And she came to visit a couple of times, but overall, it was 11 months where all we had was the telephone. That was it. And so some of you are wondering, what about Facebook and FaceTime and Skype and Twitter and all of that? Um, that didn't exist. I really am that old. And so all we had was the phone. And not just so cell phones, excuse me, we actually had landlines. And so I would go down um, very regularly and I would pick up these phone cards from the little magazine stand and they were about 50 euro a pop. And I would go through these things like water. I was just burning through these things, calling her all the time. I'm pretty sure that in that year I kept the telephone card industry booming single-handedly. And so I just kept buying these cards. But one thing that was so great about that, because we tell people this every now and again, we're like, yeah, so we dated, you know, for like 11 months separated. And they're like, that's crazy. How did you do that? Why would you even think that was a good idea? But you know what? For us, it was fantastic. And that sounds weird, but understand that through that process, we learned how to communicate. And that has served our marriage so, so well. I mean, it's not like, you know, I could hold her hand. It's not like we could make out. It's not like I could even, we could even look into each other's eyes. I mean, there was nothing. It was just a voice on the other end of the line. That was it. That was all we had. And so we learned how to have conversations we learned how to be understood and to understand the other person. And it served and has served our marriage very, very well. I definitely credit that 11 months to a lot of the strength of our marriage. And, and we learned to appreciate what I, we all know, which is that communication is so central. It's so vital to any healthy and growing relationship. And we all know that's true. We know that's true whether it's with regard to our spouse or to a friend or to a colleague, a, a boss, employee, whoever it is, whoever we have a personal relationship with, communication is key. And that's true of everyone in our lives, including our God. And so last week, um, I introduced this idea that, that God is communicating to us primarily through his word. We talked about reading and reflecting on scripture, that this is God's primary means of communication to us. That God speak to us, speaks to us through his word, that he teaches us, he corrects us, he rebukes us, and he trains us in righteousness. And that he uses that to mold us and to shape us and to make us more like his son that, so that we end up having lives that are worth imitating. So we talked about that last week. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of close that communication loop, if I, if I can put it that way. And we're going to talk about prayer. So God is speaking to us primarily, not the only way, but primarily through his word. And then we are to respond to him in prayer. Now, this might seem like a radical idea to some of you, but understand that throughout the history of Christianity, prayer and scripture has always been inseparably, inseparably linked. That as long as Christianity has existed, all of these traditions have all recognized that you have to have a full communication loop with God if it's going to be a personal and growing and deep relationship. And the reason that might seem like a radical idea for some of you, and I don't know your backgrounds, but for some of you, you may come from a tradition that says, you know, this is a little bit crazy to think that God is speaking to you directly from his word. That God is speaking to you that way. That might seem a little bit crazy. It might be even more crazy that if God is really God, that he's the creator of the universe, that somehow you get to speak directly to him. You know, maybe you've been taught that you need a, a priest or a pastor or someone else who's going to kind of bridge that gap for you. 
who's going to serve as an intermediary for you. And so you give them your request or to let them know what's going on in your lives and they're going to take that on your behalf to God. Or maybe you kind of see yourself as, a, as someone who, you, you kind of have faith, you come to church, but really you're more of a Christian by association. So your faith, your relationship with God is more based on someone else. And so it's, you know, it's your, your wife or your husband. They really love God and you're with them and so God is kind of a friend of a friend. But what we find in Scripture is that God wants each of us to have this personal relationship with Him. And He's not looking for you to have a personal relationship with someone else to get to Him. Not a priest, not a friend, not a spouse, not a coworker, not a cousin, not a grandparent, not a pastor, but you. He wants each of us to have that kind of a relationship with Him. And when we go back into the Old Testament, it looks a little bit different. When you look back in the Old Testament, we find that, that God actually, um, in the construction of the temple, right, how he has that constructed, or the tabernacle before that, he actually creates these barriers that, that keep his people, in a sense, at arm's distance. And the reason for that is because all people are sinful, and God is a perfect and holy God. And so when we look in the Old Testament, you'll see in the temple construction, there's these different rooms, and ultimately there's the Holy of Holies, and there's this curtain that hangs there. And no one is to come into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest. And so it was understood that, that God has created this system where the people would give their prayers and their sacrifices through the priest who offers them on their behalf. But when we get to the New Testament, understand that with Christ, all of that gets taken away. Christ tears the curtain, literally, at his death. The curtain is torn in two. That all those barriers come crumbling down. That Christ opens up this way. It says in Hebrews 4 that because of Christ as our high priest, we now can enter into the throne room of God. We actually get to come to the throne of grace in confidence. Now in the ancient Near East, understand that you did not walk in on the king uninvited. Right? You didn't walk in there and be like, hey king, I've got, some, I've got some requests I want you to know about. That was a death sentence. That was a great way to die right there. That was never going to happen, right? And even if you were invited or ushered in, you would come in on your hands and your knees with your face on the ground because this is the king. He's your sovereign and he could kill you right there if he changed his mind. But because of Christ, because of that association with him as our high priest, we now, he says, we can enter into the throne room of God with boldness, with confidence. That we can actually go directly to God and offer up our prayers to him because Christ is the only association we need. And so we enter into that throne room and God says, what are you doing here? The father. And Christ says, it's okay. He's with me. She's with me. We're with him. And so suddenly we have this new access to God, this new privilege of coming before God and to give him directly our prayers and our requests with boldness, with confidence. Now, the question that I want to ask this morning is, if that's all true, if we have this incredible new access, this new privilege to God, then why don't we take more advantage of it? Now, understand, I'm not trying to guilt anybody, because some of you are like, I know I'm a bad Christian, I don't pray enough. There's no easier way to get Christians to feel guilty than to ask them how much they pray. That's been tested, I'm pretty sure. I think there's research to back that up. It's the quickest way to make Christians feel guilty. And that's not my goal at all, all right? My goal is to say, ask this question, okay, if all that's true, if we have this new, amazing access to God, then why are we taking advantage of it? Like, clearly, it's a big deal that we get to pray to God directly. Christ died so that we could have this access to God. So what are we missing? What, what are we not understanding? What are we misunderstanding that's keeping us from making that more of a priority in our lives? That's the question that I want us to wrestle with 
this morning. And to do that, I want to look at this passage in Luke 11. And so I'm going to put that up here in just a moment. But let me tell you real quickly, we're looking at this passage that's going to look a lot like the prayer that Paul led us in earlier. This is a passage where Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. And it's going to look very similar to the Lord's Prayer, which Paul led us in earlier, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. But this one's a little bit different. And it's not different by accident. It's different because it was probably a different occasion. And you've got this disciple who's going to come and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. But it's also different because God, uh, Christ, is not giving us a, a prayer that we're supposed to memorize. And that's the only prayer we're supposed to use. He's giving us a model. He's giving us an example to follow, okay? So let's see what it says. Luke 11. And I just want to start in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying. I think I went, yep. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And I want to stop there for just a moment because I love this disciple. I love the heart of this disciple. This disciple, he sees Jesus praying and he's like, Jesus, I like what you're doing right there. That's amazing. You're praying. And you know what? I know that John the Baptist, he's taught his disciples to pray. And I want that. I want to know how to pray. Oh, Lord, teach us how to pray. He's not waiting for Jesus to get around to it. He's proactive. He's seeking wisdom. And so I just want to start by asking you all, when was the last time you asked God to teach you something? Some of you are going, I don't really like to ask God to teach me things because that can go turn into unpleasant things sometimes, right? And that's, sometimes that's our attitude. I don't really want God to teach me anything. That can go poorly, so I'm just going to kind of sit back and wait. And so we're really good with coming on Sunday mornings, and we like our small groups, and we let other people, when they get around to it, teach us. But when are we digging into God's Word and we're seeking out His teaching and His wisdom? See, it goes back to what we were saying last week, that, that God's Word... We're supposed to dig into it and, and dissect it and understand it because God wants to teach us things. He wants to show us how we're supposed to live our lives because he knows how life is best lived. And so we're supposed to dig into God's word looking for how to, how to be single. What does it look like to be married? How do we raise our kids? How do we spend our money? All these types of things. And that's what this disciple does. This disciple says, Jesus, teach me how to pray. He wants to learn. And so Jesus says, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, there's a lot of different things that we can say about this prayer. I just want to hit a few high points in the time that we have. The first thing I I think we have to notice here is that this is a God-focused prayer. I mean, this prayer is saturated with God. I mean, do you see it? This prayer has a lot less to do with the person praying than about the one who they're praying to. It's in the request. It's in the address. It's in every part of this prayer. It's about God. And you see in the very open... The very opening lines, Father, hallowed be your name. God, I want to see your name lifted up. I want to see your name set apart. I want your name to receive unique praise and glory in the world at large. I want your name to be glorified and honored. Your kingdom come, not my kingdom, God. Not the kingdom of the United States of America. Not the kingdom of Philadelphia or Pennsylvania or Phoenixville. Not my kingdom, but your kingdom. I want your kingdom to be lifted up. You see this in the, from the opening address. Father, this word father implies a certain respect and submission. 
Right? That's why with my kids, um, I, I've got two little boys. And when we get together and they, we start, you know, getting into it at times, which I don't know. Do you, I don't know if you guys have kids. Do your kids argue with you ever? Is that just mine? Okay. So my kids argue with me sometimes. And so I, what I do is I get down and I get right there. And I'm like, look at me. Right here. Right here. Right here. Who's the boss? Okay? It's my favorite question because they know the answer. And, and it, they know, even my two-year-old knows, that's the end of the discussion. That's the end of the conversation. No more arguing. Now, sometimes they're smart ox and they're like, my toy puppet, you know, or, or I'm the boss. No. They know, though. They know. Look right here. Look right here. Who's the boss? Daddy's the boss. Daddy's the boss. Now, look, I'm not doing that because I'm trying to be mean, and I'm not doing it because I'm an egomaniac or because I'm trying to dominate my children. I do that because it's my job to train them and to teach them to respect and submit to me so that one day they will respect and submit to our God. See, they're supposed to learn, and it's my job as their father, to teach them to respect and to submit to their earthly father so that one day they will do that with their heavenly father because what's the first priority of this prayer? It is for his will, his kingdom. It's all about him, right? I'm supposed to be seeking his kingdom and his priority first. Look, my kids are not always going to obey my will, all right? And they're not supposed to. They're supposed to grow out of that. This is just training. This is just that time. But I want them one day to pray this prayer and to say, I am seeking God's kingdom first. And as our heavenly father, he is due our respect. We're supposed to submit to him. We're supposed to seek his will above our own. Now, here's what this means. Here's what this means. When we're praying, the things that we're praying for need to align with that first priority. You following me? The things that we pray for are supposed to reflect this first priority for God's kingdom and for God's will. Let me put it another way. If I am not seeking God's will and God's kingdom first, then I'm going to pray for the wrong things. I'm going to pray for the wrong things. When you're growing up, you knew not to ask your mom for a candy bar for dinner, right? You're, you're not just asking for anything. You understood that mom probably had a certain range, right? Moms have this, you know, we, we're going to eat healthy and we're going to eat balanced meals and this type of thing. So I knew, at least in my family, that if I went and asked for a candy bar, that was right out. But I understood that within that will of hers, right, that there were some things that I was going to be able to ask for for dinner. Okay? It's the same idea here. We're not just asking for arbitrary things from God. God, I would like a Corvette. God, I'd like to win the lottery. God, I'd like the Eagles to win the Super Bowl. That's never my prayer, but maybe for some of you. Okay? That's not what we're doing. No, what we're doing is we're seeking God's kingdom first, and I'm submitting all of my prayers to him. And if I don't do that, if I don't do that, then I'm going to pray the wrong prayers. And what's going to happen is I'm going to pray as though it's what I want that matters most. I'm going to pray as though it's my will that's most important. But I'm going to tell you a secret. You and me, we are not what's most important. Our will is not what's most important. Our comfort is not what's most important. Our happiness is not what's most important. Our God is what's most important. And so when I pray, and when we pray, we're not just giving lip service to God's kingdom. We're not like, oh yeah, God, I'm going to do whatever you say, and I'm going to seek your kingdom so that he will then give me what I want. See, I'm actually building up my kingdom if I do that. I'm not manipulating God. 
I'm not going to pray the right prayer. I'm not going to do the right things. God, I'm seeking your kingdom so that you will then build my kingdom. No, I'm seeking God's kingdom because he's already given me everything in Christ. See, God is not a vending machine. I'm not putting in the right prayers and I'm not putting in the right acts and the good works and all that type of thing so that God will bless me. God is the creator of the universe. He owes me nothing. And yet he has given me everything in Christ. And so in gratitude, I serve and I seek his kingdom, not my own. And so the model looks like this. I'm going to seek his will above my own because he's already given me everything I need in Christ, recognizing that he, as our heavenly father, he provides for every good thing, all my physical needs, all my spiritual needs. You see that? So it's out of gratitude that I first, I'm seeking his will, I'm seeking his kingdom, and then I do that recognizing that as our heavenly father, he loves us, he cares for us, and he provides for all of our needs physically and spiritually. This is what you see in verse 3 and 4. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. See, one of the reasons that we don't pray is that we don't think that we need God. It's that simple. One of the reasons that we don't pray, I think, is because we just don't think that we need God. I mean, why should we pray for our physical and material needs? We have everything that we need. I mean, just look around. There's no reason to be praying. There's nothing that I can't get, right? Assuming that I have enough money or at least I have enough credit on my credit card, there's nothing that I can't get. The stores are open. I've got eBay. I've got the internet. I can get anything that I want. So why bother praying? It's demotivating, isn't it? I don't need to pray. And sadly, we think that our spiritual reality mirrors our material one. You ever notice this? That, that we often think that we must be doing spiritually well if we're doing materially well. So as long as I've got money in my bank account, and I've got a nice, beautiful house, and my car is running, then God must be pretty pleased with me. And so I don't need to ask forgiveness because clearly God's happy with me. Look at all my stuff. And I don't need to ask God for direction and leading in my life. I don't need him to protect me from temptation because clearly the way that I'm going right now, I must be headed in the right direction because I got money. God must be smiling at me. But obviously that's not true. See, until we come to grips, until we realize and really begin to appreciate that every good gift that we have, everything that we experience, both physically and spiritually, comes from God, then we're going to struggle to pray. Until I realize that all these good things that I have, all this material wealth that we experience here in this country, if we experience all that, until we realize that all of that comes from God, we're going to struggle to pray. And some of you might say, hey, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. I've earned this money. I deserve this money. I deserve everything that I have. I've worked hard for that. Really? Let's take it back a few steps. You deserved to be born here and not in Haiti or North Korea. See, it always goes back to God. It's a gift. You work really hard for everything that you've got. I appreciate that. I get that. Guess what? Who gave you that work ethic? Who gave you those talents? Who gave you those skills? Believe me, there are millions and millions and millions and millions of people who work harder than you and I can possibly imagine for less than a few dollars a day all over this world. You think that what we have isn't a gift? Believe me, it's a gift. And until we appreciate that, we will struggle to pray. And until we realize in our spiritual lives, that we are incapable, incapable of making a right decision 
apart from the grace and the mercy of God, that we will struggle to pray. But when we realize that these are gifts, when we realize that every day God is blessing us, every day as we eat, as we drink, every day that we don't mess up our marriages, that we don't mess up our children, that we don't mess up our lives, all of that is a gift from God out of his grace and mercy, then, then we'll pray. You want to make prayer a priority? Recognize that everything that you have is a gift, and then you'll pray. See, it's, it's not an accident that the poor pray. It's not a coincidence that the recovering drug addict prays. It's not an accident that somebody who has hit the bottom and realizes finally just how messed up and screwed up they are pray. It's not that they're more dependent upon God. It's that they're more aware of their dependence upon God where you and I, we have deluded ourselves into this lie of self-sufficiency. So if we're going to pray, we've got to We've got to repent of that. We've got to recognize that we are wholly dependent upon the Lord every day for every good thing that we have. So that's the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciple, but he's not done yet. He's not done yet. He wants to share something else with us. Verse 5, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So here's the picture. Make sure that you're clear on this. So uh, this guy is lying in bed at night, and then a friend of his comes in from out of town. He's like, Hey, I'm hungry. He's like, I don't have anything, and Walmart is closed. So I'm going to go to my neighbor, and I'm going to bang on his door and ask for food. Okay, so that's the picture. You got three people. One guy's asking this other guy for food to feed his friend. Okay? And so he goes over there and he's banging on this door and he says, Hey, don't wake me up. You're not just waking me up, you're waking my whole family up. At that time in the ancient Near East, a lot of in that culture, a lot of times the whole family would stay in one room. So he's saying, okay, not only are you coming at a ridiculous time of night, not only are you asking me for something, you know, that I'm just going to like give you, and then also you're waking up my whole family. And so he says, notice what he says in verse 8. He says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Did you catch that? He says he's not getting up because he likes him. He's not getting up because he's a great buddy. He says, yet because of his impudence... The other guy is banging on his door. Hey, I need some bread out here. Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. When I was in college... Um, I think that was the first time that I heard this particular idea. And maybe some of you have heard this before. It goes something like this. Prayer doesn't actually accomplish anything except in the person who prays. Maybe you've heard this before. Prayer doesn't do anything. Prayer doesn't change anything in this world. It only changes the person who's praying because the the rationale goes like this. God is sovereign and God in his will is not going to change anything. Right? It's his perfect will. It's unchanging. What God is going to do, God is going to do. And so the only reason that we pray is because it realigns our hearts with God's will. Now notice that reflects a little bit about what we said before. That we should be seeking God's will first. So there's a nugget of truth in that. But let me just say, it sounds really spiritual. I remember when I was in college and I heard that and I thought, wow, that's deep. You know? 
And then I thought about it. And then I read passages like this, and I realized it is complete hogwash. I'm from Texas. I don't even know what hogwash means. But you get the idea, right? You guys awake? You guys with me here? Okay. Because look, one of the reasons I think we struggle to pray is because we question whether or not prayer actually works. Is God really going to answer my prayers? Is he really going to do what I'm asking him to do right now? But it doesn't take a New Testament scholar to read this and say, well, Jesus clearly thinks that God's going to answer some prayers. What does he say? I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. These, these are, are cause and effect. If you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open to you. In the book of James, he says, the reason you don't have is because you haven't asked. That'll keep you up at night. See, Jesus clearly says that God answers prayers. Now, can I explain to you how f- prayer factors in to God's perfect will and his sovereignty? No, I can't. I can't do it. But Jesus... He believes that God answers prayer. So I'm going to go with him. And notice what Jesus says here. He says, you're not supposed to come to God with these polite, timid, mild little requests. How does he describe it? It's like this neighbor banging on that door of heaven. God, give me what I ask for. But notice, remember what we understand in the prayer before? It's according to God's will. It's according, it's seeking his will. And that's the caveat we got to hold on to. So don't go busting down God's door because you want a Corvette, okay? Don't go busting down God's door because you want a million dollars. No, don't go busting down God's door because you're trying to build your kingdom. Bust down God's door when you're ready to start building his kingdom, okay? So I don't pray for God to give me a bigger and nicer house. But you know what I do every day? I'm on my hands and knees and I'm banging on his door, begging for the souls of my children. That's what I pray for every single day. Don't go to God asking him to build your kingdom, but absolutely bang on that door praying for the neighbor who needs to know Jesus. Absolutely kick down his door, begging that God will rise up against injustice in this world, that he will ease suffering of those who are without in this world, the homeless, the widows, the orphans. Man, those are the prayers that God delights in. Man, when you walk into his throne room with boldness and you say, God, save this person, heal this person, they need to know you. He delights in those prayers because they sound a lot like him. When we bring those prayers to him, he sees that our hearts look like his. They mirror his. And so Jesus says, those prayers, keep asking boldly, boldly, with impudence, it says, and God will answer. Now I have to tell you, I I love this parable. I love this parable. It speaks to me. It resonates with my heart. It is near and dear to my heart. Because my kids wake me up every night. Every night. It's true. You guys are, are you guys all with me here? Everybody with me? Anybody else have small children who wake them up at night? Just a quick show of hands. Blessings on all of you, okay? Seriously, I feel your pain. Um, I, I have a five-year-old. I have not had an all-night sleep, uninterrupted sleep in five years. I'm not making this up. My wife, Carrie, and I, it's really true. Unless we were out of town or we gave the children away for a time, um, we, we have not made it all the way through a night, every night. So anything I say that's incoherent, my apologies, blame my children, okay? Um, once they start sleeping through, then you can blame me, and I'll have no excuses. 
Okay, but I get this guy, all right? Here's a neighbor. His neighbor's banging on his door. Open up, all right? So the other night, my five-year-old comes in. He wakes me up. I've dropped Rupert. Now, you don't know this, but Rupert is his stuffed dog, and he can't sleep without Rupert. And so he drops Rupert somewhere around the bed, and I'm like, buddy, it's 2 a.m. Go find him yourself. I can't find him. Buddy, it's 2 a.m. We'll get him in the morning. Now, I won't go into detail, but understand that he asked me at that point with boldness and, and impunity and impudence. And, and so I was, I was moved at that point to get up and to go help him. All right? Now, understand, all right? Don't miss this. Understand that at no point when I got up to go help him was I doing that out of love for my child. Not once. Never. I was doing that because it was easier just to do it and get him to leave me alone so I could go back to bed. Right? I was frustrated. I was irritated, but I didn't want to have to fight him, so I'm just going to go do it, and then he'll leave me alone. And that's Jesus' point. That's his point right here. That if I, in frustration and irritation and impatience, will go and give my child what he wants and what he needs, how much more will our gracious and loving and compassionate and long-suffering Father give us what we desire? If a begrudging neighbor will get up just to get the guy to quit banging on his door, if I will get up out of bed at 2 a.m. to go help my child, how much more will our Father Give us what we need. Look at what he says in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus says, look, you evil people. I always think, couldn't he have just toned that down just a hair? You know, I could have just said, God is really great. You're not so good, but no. You're evil. <laughs> you are evil people. If you evil people give your kids good things, right? My five-year-old had a birthday not long ago. He asked for a toy helicopter. I didn't give him a hacksaw. You know, it's like, go have fun, lose a few fingers. No. And I'm an evil guy, all right? I give good things to my kids. If we are evil Yet, as parents, we give our children good things. How much more will our gracious Father give us what we need? If we ask for his blessing, he doesn't give us curses. Does that mean he's going to give us everything that we ever asked for? No, of course not. That's terrible parenting. (laughs) No good parent gives their kids everything they ask for. And God is the greatest parent. But he gives us what we need and often beyond that. He lavishes us with good gifts. He dotes on us. You see that, right? He dotes on us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. This world is evidence of God's love for us, for all the things that he he gives to us out of his grace and his mercy because we're his children and he delights to to give us the things that we want and then some. Look at the beauty in this world. Have you seen this fall that we're experiencing? I'm from Texas. We don't have fall, all right? So I'm driving around, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. That's God. He's doting on us. Think about all the people in your life who God has put into your life who love you when they should know better. God is doting on you. Think about how he provides for your needs overabundantly. And even if none of that was the case, 
He's given us his Holy Spirit through his son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that he could overwhelm our souls with his grace and his mercy and pour his Holy Spirit out upon us. God dotes on us. We just have, have, have to have eyes to see. And so I will continue to pray and I will continue to beat on God's door asking God for the souls of my children that he would save them, that they would know him and follow him and love him all of their days. And I will pray that God will rise up against injustice because there is evil in this world and I want God to to act. And I will pray for the sick people that I know, believing that God can heal and that he will. And I will pray that as a church, we will bring a little bit of the kingdom to Phoenixville. Now, does that mean that God is going to answer all of my prayers exactly the way that I ask? No, of course not. But I will continue to pray boldly. I will beat on his door because he is our heavenly father who delights to answer the prayers of our children, of his children. So, last thing. Um, last week, when you're here, I've got it right here somewhere. Last week, if you're here, we, had, we handed out these little things, these little 20-mile march things. And these are for scripture reading. This is a, a way to, uh, to create a plan that's repeatable for reading your scripture. And uh, so if you didn't get one of these, you can get one as you're leaving. We're going to have some, some greeters out there handing these out. But I encourage you to take one if you haven't already. And uh, it's very, very simple. But when you think about prayer, here's the deal. What did we say at the very beginning? They're, they're inseparably linked. And so the easiest way for me to encourage you to make prayer more a part of your daily life is to simply attach it to your scripture reading. And when you begin your time, spend a couple of extra minutes at the beginning simply asking God to reveal to you what he wants to teach you from scripture that day. And then spend your time in your scripture and then spend your time in reflection, meditate on that, and then pray it back to God. And then bring your request before him. Bring your request before him because he is our heavenly father who delights in answering the prayers of his children. But look, let me just say this. If our first priority is not his kingdom, then we're going to pray for the wrong things. And if we don't think that we need him, if we don't see how he's supplying our needs each and every day, physically and spiritually, then we're going to struggle to pray. And some of you, I know, you struggle with knowing whether or not God actually answers prayer. Maybe it's not because you've got some messed up theology. Maybe it's just because you've seen bad things in your life. Maybe you've prayed for things and they haven't happened. But understand that while I can't explain everything, I know, I know that he dotes on us. That even if we had nothing else, he's given us his Holy Spirit. That he loves us, that he is our Heavenly Father and he delights, he loves to answer the prayers of his children. So let's pray to him. Father, the fact that we get to call you Father should be enough to take our breath away. And God, I've done nothing to earn that. I've done nothing to deserve that. And no one else here has either. But you love us so much. As your children. And you gave us your son so that we could come directly to you, that we could walk up to the throne of grace with confidence. 
God, I pray that you would help us to take advantage of that. I pray that we would, God, that you would kindle a fire in our souls and our spirits for our children, for our spouses, for our community, for this world, that we would bang on your door because we know that it's your will that all would come to a saving knowledge of your son, that it's your will that none should be lost. So God, I pray that you would just, God, overwhelm us with your spirit. Create a fire in us that we would come and we would beat on your door, begging you that you will rise up that you will bring your kingdom to this earth. And God, I pray that you start with me. I pray that we would be so overwhelmed that we, we would have no choice. We would be compelled to pray. And as Paul says, to pray without ceasing, that it would just become like breathing for us. That we would simply pray and pray and pray and pray and pray with boldness that your kingdom would come that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.